IFSTA is dedicated to advancing firefighting techniques and safety through the creation of our manuals, instructor resources, and student study materials. Our high-quality, technically accurate, and affordable training content has made us a fire service leader. Visit us at ifsta.org for more information. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Welcome to the Women in Fire radio show. Today we'll be talking about mental health in the fire service. Thank you to Fire Engineering for allowing Women in Fire to be part of the radio show. I'm Lisa Baker, the Southwest Region Trustee. Um, so what I said, we'll be talking about mental health. So a brief definition of mental health is a state of well-being. Mental health and company encompasses emotional, psychological, and social well-being, influence perception and behavior. According to World Health Organization, it is a state of well-being. The individual realizes his or her abilities, can cope with normal stresses of life, and can work productively and can contribute to his or her community. For many responders, there is a stigma associated with seeking help for mental illness, which is perceived by some as a sign of weakness. Studies have shown that up to 92% of surveyed firefighters indicate stigma as a reason for their unwillingness to get help. According to the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance, more firefighters die from suicide each year than in the line of duty, and many additional suicides are likely unreported. A 2018 study showed that public safety personnel are five times more likely to suffer symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which we know as PTSD, and depression than their civilian counterparts. Today, I have, as the guests, I have Lieutenant Heidi Simon, who just recently retired from South Metro, Fire Rescue, which is in the Denver, Colorado area. I have Laura Lyons, who's a lieutenant in the Del Moy, Iowa Fire Department. And then I have our subject matter expert on this topic today, Julie Nelson, who is a paramedic firefighter in the South Metro Fire Department. Um, and I'm going to let Julie um, discuss how she became so interested in this topic. And that's actually going to be our first question. So, Julie, how did you become interested in mental health and, and for the fire service? About 15 years ago, I went to a um, paramedic refresher, and on the second day, we were talking about psych after lunch, and I remember thinking distinctly, who planned this? What a bad idea to do psych after lunch on the second day. This is like the least favorite topic that anybody wants to deal with as um, as paramedics, <clears throat> and it was uh, something that I was initially really skeptical about. 
And this woman came in and she said that she had worked in interventional psych for about 40 years. And she said, I wish I were younger because we're on the precipice of understanding so much about the mind. And she started talking and debunking a lot of myths that I think many of us have had for years that, you know, we only use 10% of our brain at any particular time. And she said, you use 100% of your brain 100% of the time, especially when you're sleeping. And she started talking about trauma and <clears throat> emotional processing. And at first I thought she was talking about our patients. And then as she continued to talk, I realized that she was talking about, about us. <clears throat> she began to discuss um, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a form of therapy that is used for <clears throat> processing traumatic memories and decreasing the amount of um, sort of sting that they have. And so I had been a paramedic for about 10 years at that point. And I, I feel like I was doing generally quite well. And I think one of the tricky things is that we're around our cohorts where we're all sort of experiencing a lot of the same symptoms. So, you know, you drink a little bit too much, you uh, sort of, uh, you're, you get a little salty and that's, that's kind of normal, <clears throat> but she really lit this fuse in me to sort of discover more. And so I found an EMDR therapist locally, and this is kind of before EAP was widely, um, utilized at my department 15 years ago. And so I went totally on my own. And uh, when I first went in, the therapist was like, I'm so glad that you know about this therapy. Um, and she said, could you write down calls that are kind of triggers for you? So I ended up writing down about 24 calls. And when I wrote them down, I realized that more than half of them were from my first two years in EMS. And I think that... <clears throat> You know, for one, I started out at 18, as many uh, young people do in the fire service, and your brain isn't even fully developed until you're 25. And I think also when you begin, your skills aren't very good. And so I think I took on a lot of internal trauma about um, sort of personal responsibility for calls that um, had bad outcomes. And I think that that's a fairly common, um, common occurrence. Would you Ladies agree with me that that's something that you've experienced? Yes. Sort of taking on. Yeah. Yes. So when I wrote those down, I remember initially feeling a little bit overwhelmed because I thought, ooh, one call per, per therapy session. I'm going to be in here once a month for a year, or I'll be in here twice a month for, um, excuse me, once a month for two years. And she said, well, it doesn't really work like that. It's actually quite a bit faster. And so she said, well, we're not going to start with dead babies and plane crashes. We're going to start with something like a, the loss of a pet or something that if it's um, emotionally dysregulating and you have trouble coming back from it, it's not going to kind of totally derail you. Um, so we started off with the loss of a pet. And then in three subsequent sessions from there, I managed to process all 24 of those calls. And it was for me, it felt like kind of unhooking a, an emotional train of baggage that I'd been sort of dragging behind me without really realizing <clears throat> the weight of it for quite some time. And so um, that really 
lit my curiosity, curiosity, I think. And over the years, I've um, shared my experience with other people. And then in the last uh, two years, I've started my own um, education, working toward my degree in military and first responder psychology with the intent of becoming a trauma therapist. So I'm, um, I'm in the middle of school, but I'm not, uh, I haven't graduated yet, so I'm not, not fully certified. Thanks. Um, Julie, you mentioned something like the death of a pet. And I mean, we often hear, and I think um, Lieutenant Simon and Lieutenant um, Lyons could attest to this. When you go on a call and it involves a, ki- a, ch- a child or a young child, it affects um, people differently, especially if you have a, a child that age or something. And like you mentioned, pets. And so some people would think with a pet dying, if I mean, especially if they don't have pets, that it's not really a big thing. And if, but if you have pets, I mean, pets are now like family members. So I'm glad you brought that up because d- different people do have different responses to the same incident that you can go on. Like the five of us could go on a call and we're probably all going to have different responses or different feelings about that call. Right. Or am I wrong? It, absolutely. Well, it's, it's that ability to relate to a call. Um, the first pediatric death I had after my daughter was born felt profoundly more impactful than the ones that I had had previous to that. And I think that that's a fairly common occurrence. Um, When we have things in our life that tie us to these calls in some way, it um, it becomes much more personal. Thank you. Um, Does anyone have anyone to add to that or? Um, Lisa, I wanted to mention that, you know, that's, we've talked previously um, about company officer expectations and things when, um, and we talked briefly about mental health. But going back to some of those um, topics about your expectations of taking care of each other is that recognizing that everybody processes things different and putting that judgment aside. Um, And that as a company officer is important, but also as an expectation for your crew members to understand that people's backgrounds, um, people's experiences, the way they were brought up, um, and the way they live their life currently, all will shape the way that they're they're going to respond to these um, traumatic events. And so putting that judgment aside um, and also as a company officer, getting to know your people really well so that you can see how things are affecting them because we're not always um, as upfront about that. Thanks, Heidi. And such a good point. It is. So, I mean, you brought up EAP, um, Julie, but we often also hear of CISM, Critical Incident Stress Management, or Employee Assistant Program, um, that helps fire after a traumatic incident or call, especially CISM. I think now peer counseling or peer support is um, in the forefront as well. Um, are there? Do you guys feel there's any drawbacks of, of CISM or peer support? When you, I mean, we all notice, not, realize the importance of probably doing it after a traumatic call. Like Heidi just mentioned, knowing your crew and such and seeing how they um, are reacting and stuff. But as a company officer or even as a firefighter paramedic and you're on the call and you see another, your, you know, your um, counterpart and they're starting to act differently after the call or something, how, how did we go about this and make it not be even like, I mean, SISM or EPA. I mean, some of the problems I noticed that was with EPA is sometimes counselors aren't really, um, trained on the firefighter mentality, so to speak. So they send you to a, a counselor that's really not in tune with what how firefighters process things. But as far as SISM or peer support, what are is there any drawbacks or does anybody see any drawbacks or 
the largest body of evidence kind of against it is the vicarious trauma that people can experience. So it's kind of um, one of the guys that I work with uh, in a door, he described it. He was like, you know, when we got in in the late nineties, he's like, it was like critical incident stress debriefing is going to save us all. We're going to get, we're going to get around in a circle and we're going to talk about these things. And we're going to kind of color in all the details of everything that we didn't understand with different colored pencils. And he's like, and I just don't know that that's always really beneficial. And I think the, the idea behind it is we know that normalizing, educating and supporting people is that's the intent. And we want to prepare people that they've been through something emotionally traumatic and that it's normal to feel dysregulated for a few weeks. So kind of one of the differences between post-traumatic stress injury and where you cross over into PTSD is sort of this, it's a one month period where, you know, if you've been through something that's really hard, it's, it's considered normal to be fairly upset about that for a month. If it goes over that and, and for years later, you're having <clears throat> symptoms from it, you're kind of getting into what the diagnostic and statistical manual um, describes as PTSD. So, what we do know is that talking about these things is really important. So like strong unit leadership, crew cohesion, communication is really, really valuable. Where it doesn't work so well is I think, you know, all of these different traumatic events are really different. And so it's, it's tough if we, if we're on a big fire or we go on a pediatric arrest and people are hungry or they're really tired or um, they're, they're more worried about getting their engine back in service after a big event um, to kind of gather everyone around and say, hey, let's talk about our feelings. A lot of people, including myself, kind of frequently sort of bristle up and go, I don't really want to do that right now. Um, is that, do you ladies agree with that or is that? Absolutely. Yeah, um, Lieutenant, that's, I mean, it's just, if you back up to when we first started, Julie, in the late 90s, and we started with this, um, we called it Mayflower out here, and it was a great program, but it was addressing things. Um, you have talked frequently, Julie, about doing resilience training so that you're prepared, not just for the events, but you've also talked about them almost before they've happened, that you know that, that you may see this and how some options of how you can handle them. At that time, it was more of this, um, we're forcing you all to sit down and you will talk about this. And if you didn't participate, you were almost shamed, which um, puts you really in a vulnerable position as far as how you were going to leave and process that. So those debriefings, I think, um, and I, I think what we have done at South Metro is try to, and not very well, at this point, but I think we're working on this, is training our people to be able to do that um, somewhat informally without peer support there, um, because that conversation can then sometimes lead to, you know what, let's get peer support here. We do need to talk about this. But but having almost a pre-debriefing instead of forcing it on people, because I just think that that has been mostly unsuccessful and even more traumatizing to some of the people. Um, so I'm glad to see that we don't force that on crews anymore, but that was a very normal occurrence. Um, 
Lieutenant Lyons, I'm guessing that that's pretty similar. We've been on about the same time. Yeah, I, I'll just add to that. I mean, not everybody is ready to talk. And if you try to press people to speak, then you can create other issues. And sometimes in those group settings can make other problems resurface and just to those acute reactions to reliving it. So there are just a lot of different things that could happen in these meetings um, and, and how different people react to them. Uh, Absolutely. I think that you have to create an environment where people feel safe and secure and all of their biological needs have to be met first. If people are cold, if they're wet, if they're hungry, people are not going to be in the right mental state. I think the best debrief I ever had was at the station over dinner out of service with, um, with a legit EAP person that came out to the station where it didn't, there was no pressure. It felt much more like a conversation than, um, I think that the round robin thing is a mistake that people will often well-intentionedly try to get people to sort of go around the table. And then that sort of slides over into like um, almost like an after action of like, well, here I was and I did compressions and I did this and this and this. And, um, and it's just a, a lot of it is a lack of um, formal education. And I think, if you look at the data, critical incident stress management was designed in the 70s and 80s by um, Mitchell and Everly. And again, their idea was to normalize, educate, support, and prepare individuals for emotional and physical aftermath of trauma. Um, <clears throat> but it's really been controversial. And I think um, I would say half of the debriefs that I've been on, I've been glad that I was there. And half I was like, Ugh, that was either not beneficial or... Um, I just didn't really enjoy it. Is that, would you say that that's accurate for everybody's kind of shaking in their heads? Yes. So um, <clears throat> a newer thing that's come in since 9-11 that's a bit less controversial is psychological first aid. And that was used after 9-11 for the survivors and the rescue workers. And it's pretty, it's interesting. It's, it's actually much more the approach of what we do with the public um, after like a cardiac arrest or a large event where we, um, it consists of eight parts and you can, there's a free manual that you can get, um, the psychological first aid field operations guide. It's through the national child traumatic stress network. It's an excellent book for anybody who's looking to kind of increase their, um, psychological first aid skills, but there's eight basic parts. You um, contact first, provide safety and comfort, stabilization, do a needs assessment, provide assistance, um, and then connect people with social support, give them information on coping, and link with collaborative services. So it's kind of, it's an ongoing thing, but I think that it's, um, there's less of an approach of trying to get people to move into an emotional space, and it's more about um, being really practical and then kind of allowing people to come into that emotion um, on their own. Does that make sense? Yeah, Julie, I like that practical side of it um, because we are these practitioners, right? And we don't like to dive deep into things. Um, so you've said a couple of things that really stand out to me, but one is um, 
the biological safety, right? Being warm, being fed, being in a comfortable position, being out of service. That's a huge thing that I think that we as officers get really worried about. Are, oh God, can we go out of service? And, you know, towards the end of my career, I was adamant about, you know, hey, chief, we're going out of service. And it just, it wasn't, there was obviously trust between the chiefs and myself that if I was doing that, there was a reason. Um, but I think that just created this whole letdown experience for people and and gave them the opportunity to sit around. Um, but then also normalizing some of the responses that we would have to the trauma, right? And making it there. So making it that this is just a practical thing that happens to us. And if we can recognize some things that some triggers that may end up causing us to behave in certain ways and how to go about getting ourselves help and just making it almost matter of fact, which I don't want it to be that way, but it's almost making that, it seems like it's more accepted. Is that, what do you think of that? Laura, do you you think of that at all? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. It's all about support um, and having that environment of support and We have a great peer support program. Um, They do a lot of things and they visit the stations periodically and chief support. Like we'll go out of service if we feel it's necessary. Um, Depending on the call, we'll take the time to go out of service and do have a conversation to make sure everyone's doing okay. And then based on that, um, the needs of our personnel, they feel maybe they can't continue working um, and they need to leave that type of thing. So it's important to have that support. And as we talked about the environment where people feel, people feel safe to speak out. And because a lot of times with our job, we're constantly on the defensive. Our fight and flight is always constantly going. So it's extremely important. I call them the organizational stressors that we make a supportive, safe environment for others to want to speak about this and get over some of those stigmas that surround mental health in our, in our field. I'm so glad that you brought up the physiological response because that's a really important part of addressing things. I think when you look at psychology, there's really, there's the top down, which is kind of talking and cognitive processing and therapy and journaling and all the, these things that we think about. And then there's the physiological response, which is how our body stores the trauma and stores all of our experiences. And we have to really address both of those. And so if we want to finish the stress cycle, like if we get off of a stressful call, say we have a a hard cardiac arrest in the middle of the night, we're kind of amped up. If we just walk on the treadmill 15, 20 minutes, that can help us finish the stress cycle. So like if you think of animals in nature, like if a if a herd of deer startle, they run for a little bit, right? And then they stop running and they all start grazing again because they're calm. For us, we're kind of constantly throttling on the gas pedal and um, we have to allow ourselves to come back down. And so um, working out is a really important part of that and getting to a high level of, um, working out like getting a runner's high is really beneficial. But if we do that kind of in the middle of the night, um, that can wake us up more. So that's not necessarily um, beneficial right in the aftermath. But there's some really interesting data too. Yoga has now been um, validated as beneficial for people that are treatment resistant for PTSD. So just doing um, 
yoga a couple times a week for like six to eight weeks can really benefit benefit people. Part of that's just the the process of breathing, movement, feeling safe in your body, and down regulating your your nervous system. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And how you just said yoga, I know a lot more um departments are actually having yoga as part of the uh, recruit academy now. They teach that as yes. physical um physical training in the recruit academy. They teach yoga now. So that's, I mean, so I guess some departments are realizing that does help with things. Well, and it, it helps on a lot of levels, right? Because it creates more strength and flexibility. And then when we're able to control our breathing, so, um, you know, breath mastery, I think is like a lifelong practice that I'm definitely uh, still working on and feeling um, like I have a long way to go. But <clears throat> when we get toned out for um, a call that we Immediately, you know, we all know those calls that you hear parties trapped, you hear pediatric cardiac arrest, heart rate goes up, respiratory rate goes up. One of the things that happens is we typically start breathing high in our chest and rapidly. And if we're able to slow our exhalations down to where they're at least longer than our inhales, that will slow our heart rate a little bit. And it's tricky because the ramping up side is good from the perspective of if, if a crocodile grabbed you and held you underwater, the fact that you'd hyperventilated for a couple minutes, you would be able to stay conscious longer and fight more effectively. But when you look, the, the military has done some really detailed studies on heart rate and our ability to think. And, and basically, the higher your heart rate goes, the less you have the ability to think. So that's why you know, it's important um, that the battalion chief doesn't go and pull the first line for the fire, right? Because if you get your heart rate really ramped up, you can't think clearly, right, chief? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, I mean, not basically. So, so far, right, we've been talking about um, what occurs after the event. So, right. um we instruct officers and chiefs to keep an eye out, like uh, Heidi mentioned, to make sure that, you know, know your crew, look out for any changing signs and stuff. Um, but is this too late? Should we be doing something before these calls happen to instruct people? I mean, we're kind of in mental health, and I could be way off base here, but we're kind of more reactive than proactive. So after something happens, we, we're going to get the peer support group, or we're going to have people go to SISM, and we're going to watch you and, like, four days later, we might notice that you're acting different. And so then is it too late? Should we be doing something before these calls actually happen? Well, I think you're spot on. There's a lot more discussion about resilience now in the fire service than ever before. And we're starting to understand a lot more about the data, which is really valuable. So average civilians are exposed to about four to eight traumatic events in their life. And we don't know the exact data for, for firefighters, but uh, for most career law enforcement officers, they're exposed to about 120 traumatic episodes in their life. So it's we know that we're going to be exposed to a significant amount of trauma over our career. So developing healthy coping strategies that work for us individually are really important. So trauma is cumulative over the lifespan. So that I like to think of it like we're all born with a backpack and everybody has maybe a little bit different size backpack. And if we have some childhood trauma, that 
that can go one of two ways. If you have some childhood trauma, but you have good parental support and your parents or one of your parents teach you how to deal with that and manage it, you can actually have better resilience because you've had good modeling. Does that make sense? Yes. From a young age? And then kind of those, you know, if you think of this backpack as things that we put, you know, if we put rocks in there that are traumas and they're all different sizes, if we have some of that when we're young, you know, it can make our legs really strong. We can get used to kind of dealing with that. It can prepare us. Where childhood trauma can really um, be problematic is if people feel chronically unsafe growing up um, with one or both of their caregivers, then um, it can really lead into some really dysfunctional adaptations that um, that we need a lot longer than an hour to talk about. But um, if, if that is something that people feel like uh, is accurate for them, it's really important to seek out some therapy earlier on in your career so that you can really start the process of healing um, some of the experiences that you've been through and, and develop some healthy coping. So one of the tricky things about our parents, good or bad, is we primarily learn our coping strategies through them. So if one or both of our parents were alcoholics, that is something that we might lean towards. And in the fire service, one of the most confounding difficult aspects to handle is co-occurring substance abuse, most often alcohol, with with PTSD. So I think... you know, if you think about your body like a car, if we wait until the car is on the side of the road and it needs a tow because the transmission's falling out or the motor seized, we're, we're too far behind. Whereas if we teach people more about their neuroscience at the beginning of their career, you know, encourage people to kind of get an oil change, take care of yourself, build, you know, build psychoeducation into our protocols and into the academy and we normalize it a little bit more, um, I think that people will be much more apt to seek out care um, over their career. Do you feel, I feel like I've seen a big shift in the last 20 years over about discussions that are having in the firehouse compared to when I first started. Would you agree with that? I agree. It's been more discussed now since I started in the fire service. I mean, before none of this was ever talked about, it was like, get your report done report done. And um, so we, I think the fire service has really taken a look at mental health and say, Hey, this is important. Uh, We got to take care of our people. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people now starting in drill Academy, peer support comes in, talks with them. And so it's on, it's a high priority for sure. It's great. I think it's interesting too, you know, when we talk about those parental stressors, the, the, um, the things that were forged in your, in your normal mechanisms of action because of how you saw your parents and how they taught you, maybe not purposefully, but how to respond and to react to things, um, when we're talking about that, a lot of people initially go to, oh, being abused or being sexually assaulted or, but, but it goes even to small management, such as taking those drinks or the anger 
um, that is shown whether there's actual physical violence or not, but just having these angry outbursts or very sad outbursts. or And those are the way when you learn those mechanisms of coping um, or that your strategies unhealthily from your parents, I don't think that's a correct word, but in an, an unhealthy manner, um, those can really add to how you end up reacting to these traumatic events at work. So I think we need to recognize that it's not just you were abused or you were sexually assaulted. It's not always these great traumas from your parents, but some of it is just um, the way that they were brought up and the life that they were living at the time that they were raising you um, can can have some negative impacts on your ability to cope and have resilience. So we just, oops, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to go ahead, Julie. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the the fam- my family of origin, um, my mom was incredibly empathetic, but she was also a very stoic woman that, and she was really against sort of seeking mental health services. And I think that for me, that carried over for a long time. And I think especially um, for men that that's really, really common that it's sort of, um, you know, they'd rather, you'd rather admit that you have like a drug problem than admit that you're going to therapy, you know, but the, the therapeutic modalities have become so much better. And I, I think that people are discussing their experiences and that's really, really powerful. Like it, at my department, um, one of our courageous longtime paramedics um, got up at two different paramedic meetings and just discussed his own journey and becoming um, suicidal and coming very close to taking his own life and then kind of discussed his journey after. And and we saw a really large spike in EAP utilization after he had the courage to do that. And I think that um, it, it just takes sometimes a small group of people that are willing to, to talk about these hard <clears throat> moments to allow other people to go, wow, yeah, I feel that way too. I, yeah, maybe I'll go in, you know, especially when they hear like good results in a short period of time. So we briefly just hit on the topic of alcohol, substance abuse, and delaying trauma processing. So is it that people use that as a coping mechanism instead of wanting to get their feelings out or is it? Oh, without a doubt. Um, Our number one strategy as firefighters, according to the data, is avoidance. So, you know, I think, I think to understand anything, we really have to validate things first. So when you look at stigma, it's like a hundred years ago, like psychology really didn't exist as a field. And in its foundling years, it really, you know, nobody knew what trauma informed care was. That was, that's a completely new, new area. So, you know, a hundred years ago, soldiers on the battlefield, you know, liquor was allowed and you trusted the people that you were in the trenches with, right? And and those same things, those same traditions carry over today, right? And so like on the on the law enforcement side, there's sort of, um, you know, something called choir practice, which that's not at all departments, but that's kind of something that is brought up in the literature where it's like cops get off duty and they go out and they drink together and they talk and kind of, you know, debrief the day. And so what is in one in one way, it's really good, right? People are talking about stuff and the initial action of alcohol kind of takes that filtering effect off of the frontal lobe a little bit. And so it allows us to go into that kind of 
emotional brain a little bit. The problem is most people don't just stop at one or two drinks. Many people continue to drink or they come home and then they continue to drink. Um, and, and then it can become more of a habitualized, um, this, is, this is my way of managing stress versus um, working all the way through it. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense. So like when we look at resilience, like the, the first thing is really communication, that strong unit leadership, feeling like you're a part of something, the, the power of people around us to really normalize our experiences. And, and for me, I think about early on in my career, some of those really hard calls that I had that I, I took on, this person died because I couldn't get the intubation quickly enough or because I, I, I didn't leave the scene well enough or, or whatever it was. And it took some of my senior partners to look at me and go, Julie, it's, it was a, you know, it's an emergency for a reason. It's a mess. Like we show up, we try to make things better, but a lot of times people are already dead. They're, they're not in a good space when we get there and we often can't mitigate that. And I think that unfortunately we don't talk about that enough in training. You know, we do CPR training and we don't talk about like everybody knows once you've been doing it a few years, like that you rarely get people back when you do CPR. But when you start, you have all this hope, right? You're like, oh, we're going to bring them back. They're going to survive. They're going to walk out. And after a number of years, you're like, well, maybe we can get them back so they can be an organ donor, right? Is that, I mean, yeah. do you agree? I agree. So I think the normalization that can happen just through communication is really powerful. The number two thing for resilience is um, good sleep. And virtually all almost all the things in the diagnostic and statistical manual involve sleep disorders. Like sleep is somehow affected in so many pathologies in the brain. It's really, really important. And sleep could be a whole other topic and it, it really should be because there's so much to it. But I think that we have, you know, that there's the sleep we get in the station and then the ability to fall back to sleep is really important. So like, it, you know, we can't necessarily affect the number of calls that we go up and go on and the number of times that we're up. But if we're able to ramp back down and get back to sleep more effectively, that can really impact our resilience. So when you look at the stages of sleep, there's four of them. And when we're in REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement, that's when we're really doing our, our memory storage and what I've found monitoring my own sleep over the last few years is that sometimes at the fire station, I don't think I'm ever going into REM sleep. And that's really not, that's really not good for your body over the long haul. So trying to make a commitment to get good sleep on your days off can be really important. And practicing sleep hygiene is, um, is really important. So it's interesting, um, Julie, one of the things you know, being retired, you think all these things might actually go away. Um, and I think that there's a component of, of things that affected us while at work um, to decrease our resilience that still affect us after we've retired. And Lisa, you being retired may also experience this. Um, it just, I just recently started to be less desensitized to the lights coming on. So 
but I'm not completely desensitized by it by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but like if I can hear something click on as if the speakers were opening up, then I hear that and I sleep very lightly. Um, and then the other thing is the waking up and not being able to go back to sleep. I may as well just go out and mow the lawn. It's, um, it'd be very weird at three o'clock in the morning, but it, it's, it's um, something that I think if we can get our younger people in the fire service to recognize and to address then and get into the habit of whatever it is that helps with that, that they're, longevity in the service will be better, but also outside of it. Because as a retired person, we wonder, you know, how long are we going to live retired? I want to live at least as long as I worked, if not longer, right? So, um, but knowing that I'm still having some of those ingrained habits that decrease my resilience throughout the day with my family, um, or just generally in life, those are things that I think going back to the academy, um, like Lieutenant Lyons said, just really addressing it early um, and becoming part of your normal habit. So you're not some crazy person like Lisa and I now. <laughs> Sorry, Chief. <laughs> no, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> exactly who you're talking about. And sleep is tricky. It naturally degrades with aging. And so that doesn't help. But then if you if you count in 20 or 30 years of behavioral training, it can be really um, it can be really hard to um, affect those habits. And I think that um, whoever can fully hack sleep is going to be a gajillionaire because there's a lot of people out there that struggle with it. But Looking at the data again, the the biggest thing we do to screw up our sleep off duty is drinking. Like if you look at all the bad habits of like watching TV in bed, playing on our phones, um, you know, caffeine too late in the day, all of those added up don't compare to the effect of alcohol on our sleep. So um, anyway, that's hate to say it, but, uh, alcohol is not everything it's been, um, it's been sold to us to be over the years. So, um, P what is the difference between PTSD versus a stress injury? Is there a difference or is it the same or? So it's kind of a continuum. So post-traumatic stress injury is, is PTSD symptoms within the first 30 days. And then, it branches over into be, being considered a disorder after 30 days. Um, there's been a push from the Veterans Administration to take the word disorder out of it because it's it's not a lifetime diagnosis. It's only a diagnosis when you are within the symptom threshold. So it's like they want us to move it either to um, post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress injury, because that's something that you can heal from just like you heal from a broken leg. So some of the um, categories that I think are especially challenging for first responders because of our shift work is um, <clears throat> negative alterations in cognitions, which are irritable behavior and angry outbursts, hypervigilance, exaggerated startle response, problems with concentration and sleep disturbances. So if, if you're curious about yourself and you kind of want to do an assessment because you feel like you might have PTSD, you can pull up on the, um, the DOD website, Department of uh, Defense website, 
it's called the PCL5 and um, look at the civilian version and it's, it's free. When you pull that up, you know, you're going to get other psychological sites that are going to be sponsored. Don't click on those. Make sure you click on the DOD website, which everything's free on there, but it's just a, uh, it's a two page thing, but it's basically at the checklist of symptoms and you can print that off and you can do it and kind of grade yourself. And then what you can do with that is if you are in the category of having PTSD, then you can look for a trauma-informed uh, therapist. So the, there's a lot of different therapeutic modalities out there, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. The, um, there are three that the Department of Defense validates as the most effective for PTSD treatment. And <clears throat> the first one's prolonged exposure therapy, and that one has the most data. Um, that's not something that I've um, tried, but my understanding of it is that you generally you're talking about it or you're talking about it and then recording it with a therapist and then they have you kind of play it over and over again. So to me, that seems a little bit akin to like watching a scary movie, uh, you know, every day until you know all the scary bits and you're like it, it no longer bothers you. Um, I think one of the difficult aspects with that particular one is if there's an element of shame for someone where they, they don't really want to share it with the therapist, which I think um, a fair number of firefighters feel that way, where they don't necessarily want to state these things out loud, that can be um, a challenging discussion for them. Cognitive processing therapy is, that's a talking-based therapy, but that is designed, excuse me, to challenge maladaptive beliefs about ourselves. So this is what I think we, we often do through peer support with just discussing things with our coworkers where they say, oh yeah, you did that. Well, that, that seems reasonable that, oh yeah. Okay. Well, oh yeah. Next time you could do this, that. And I think that we do a lot of that sort of just in the station. Um, and that's can be really valuable, especially I think for our newer folks. Um, and then EMDR, that's my favorite one. That's what I want to practice as a trauma therapist. That's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And there's some debate out there. They don't fully understand how EMDR works. It was designed by Francine Shapiro in the late 90s. But we know that when you're in REM sleep, your eyes move back and forth, typically in a horizontal fashion. And so EMDR in the initial um, sort of iterations, what Dr. Shapiro realized was kind of that your eyes moving back and forth is really kind of comforting. And I think for anybody, you know, that's a cyclist or a runner, when you go outside and you're in nature, that's a pretty normal thing that you're kind of scanning the horizon, that you're looking back and forth in a state of flow. And I don't think that you necessarily have to be in a formal setting to do a lot of this stuff. Um, but EMDR initially, um, was you were tracking someone's finger back and forth while you were thinking about, uh, an, a memory that was difficult. And then that's moved on to now you can either do it with a light bar where you're watching that move back and forth, or there's, um, my favorite is alternating. Um, it's a gentle electrical current that you hold in your hands and then you put audio, um, on, and so for the therapist, they ask you, you know, I'm just going to use a, a pediatric cardiac arrest as an example to, because I think that's something many people can relate to. <clears throat> they would say, 
what, what is this bringing up for you? And you say, well, um, sadness, um, primal screams of the parents. Um, I just, I want to let it go. Every time I think about it, it's really emotional for me. And then they say, well, how do you want to feel about it? I want to feel like I've moved past it. I want to, I want to let it go. <clears throat> and then typically the therapist will have you, uh, they'll kind of talk about a safe place to come back to, or some type of a grounding technique where if you kind of become overwhelmed during the experience, they can kind of bring you back. Um, <clears throat> and then, and then they'll have you basically it's designed to be done in one minute sets when you start, but then they can move that time up as time goes on, but you're not, it's not a language based therapy. So you're not talking, you're just experiencing it. So you're holding it in your mind. And what I've found is you can move, you can think through all this visual imagery so much more quickly and our emotional brain is primarily the lower part of the brain, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and our frontal lobe, that's our, that was the last part of our brain to be developed. And that's where our language is. But that doesn't, the language doesn't necessarily evoke the same level of emotion that the visual imagery smells and those powerful things Um where they live in the brain. So I think that that's one of the really powerful things about EMDR is this ability to um, revisit without kind of being encumbered by language. And then they kind of walk you through it and they sort of make you hold. It's like when it gets uncomfortable, you kind of lean into it, hold those images, and then they kind of lose their, lose their power. And then they kind of bring the, uh, bring the positive stuff in. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Heidi, you hit on this a little bit. Um, and like being retired, you still remember things like the lights going on and stuff. So I think, and I, I could be way off base here, but if you go on a, a really traumatic call and I mean, you're going to remember it, right? If, if, you know, you had a call where 36 people died, um, you're going to obviously remember it, but eventually, I mean, and then, I mean, we, we heard people saying, you know, joking around with it. Oh, we're probably going to be messed up for the rest of our lives with this blah, blah, that kind of thing. Um, and then I, I don't know for me personally, as the time go by, I even forget it. And I, I remember what month it happened, but I, until I saw it on the news the other day, I'm like, Oh, that's right. That was that day. And you kind of remember, okay, this is where I was when I got the call kind of thing. But eventually does, does the thing, those things like that kind of like go away or you keep remembering things. Am I making any sense? Well, we have the capacity to compartmentalize and our body can kind of protect us um, for things for a while. And memory loss is a component of PTSD that I think is, is somewhat protective. But if we go back in with intentionality, the, the difficult thing about if we don't process these things, they can sometimes come up when we have like an evocative cue. So, um, if we have, let's say, let's say we had a bad fire where um, someone died and that smell of uh, human flesh is very distinct. Say we have another call where we smell that smell or we go, let's say we go to a barbecue or something and there's some trigger there. And then all of a sudden we're, we're lost in our memory and we're back in that space. And we're like, what the heck is going on? Like there's a, um, there's a great book that um, it was written by a military psychologist where he's talking about 
a guy who came back after he'd been blown up by an IED and he's in the rehabilitation portion and the guy goes out to dinner with his family and he walks into this Italian restaurant and all of a sudden he's overcome with anxiety and fear. And he's like, we have to get out of here right now. And so they leave and he goes in and talks to his therapist and he's like, I'm, I think I'm like totally broken. Like what the heck is wrong with me? I can't even eat in public. And um, the therapist starts to walk through it with them. And when he saw the red and white checkered tablecloth, that was the same pattern of the caliph that the suicide bomber was wearing right before they were blown up. And so the brain makes this, makes this connection with the pattern, the smell, like right when we're born, our, our sense of smell, the old factory is the oldest cranial nerve. And it's one of the most powerful. So I think for, for a lot of us, those smells, I mean, it's like, you walk into the nursing home at three in the morning and you smell urinary tract infection, right? We all know what that smells like. And we all go on autopilot, right? Like, oh yeah, this is a UTI, let's go. Um, but it, and it can be really positive because it can tell us the same, you know, we're able to walk through a lot of calls kind of on autopilot because of these little evocative cues that tell us like, this is a big deal or this is not a big deal. But one of the challenging things is that if we don't, intentionally go back in to do some of the trauma processing, it can really, it can creep back up on us later. And I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people feel like, well, if I leave the job, these memories will kind of leave me and it doesn't, doesn't really work that way. And then a lot of our, our group, our people that are around us are then gone, you know? And so then I think sometimes people start to feel alone or broken or like, what's wrong with me. Um, and nothing's really wrong with you. You just have a whole backpack full of rocks and, you know, just need a little help dumping them out. So can you briefly talk about the treatment modalities for PTSD? Did we already hit on that a little bit or? I did. So the, the three primary ones are the uh, prolonged exposure therapy, the EMDR, and the cognitive processing. And that's not to say that there aren't a lot of other therapies out there that can be highly effective. Just those are the three that are um, considered kind of the most effective. But I think that on, on a daily basis to promote resilience, things like, you know, good sleep, good nutrition, good community support, getting together with your friends off duty and your, and your crew, that can be really, really beneficial. Like we are social animals and it's really important that we spend time with each other. So not only in the fire service, but in other um, professions are realizing the importance of having counseling available for members to discuss traumatic issues after they occurred. Um, I think mm -hmm. when, if you're a football fan last year, when we saw the guy um, have the cardiac arrest on the field, the first thing the NFL came out and said was there'd be counseling available. And I think when, and now when it happens in schools, if somebody dies, even off duty, a child dies off duty, they're doing trauma um, counseling. So do you, would having counselors who are versed in the fire service culture help members feeling more comfortable? So if, like I mentioned when we the um, EAP, some some of the drawbacks I know in my department when it first started was they would send you, I'd, I'd hear they'd send you counselors that weren't really versed in the culture of the fire service. So, I mean, whether it's good or bad, sometimes 
the way we cope is, you know, laugh or something. And these counselors didn't understand the culture of the fire service. So with having counselors that are totally versed, is has it changed now that when you're going to EAP, the counselors that they're sending you to are versed in the, in the fire service culture or is Well, I think one of the best things that people can do is to get, find a therapist before you're in crisis. If you, it's kind of like if you waited until you were diagnosed with um, stage four cancer to get a primary care doctor, you're really behind the eight ball versus if you have a doctor that you know and love and they know who you are and you can call them, um, you know, and get in last minute for an appointment, um, you're, you're going to be in a much better position. So I think that, you know, therapists are really like what might work great for me might not work for you. And so it's, it's a really unique bond and, you know, you're looking for somebody that you really want to feel comfortable sharing some of your deepest, darkest secrets and, and having them help you live the best life that you can. And so the idea that you're just going to instantly find that off of like, uh, you know, a random group of five people on a list is, you know, um, maybe wishful thinking, you know, and I think that it's another awesome thing to think about it with young people. I like to tell people that are new getting into the fire service, like work really hard your first couple of years, really get the job under your belt and then start thinking about your education and think about what your life would look like without the fire service and what you want to do. Um, you know, we all hope that we're going to have a long career when we get into this job, but the reality is a really significant people, a significant portion of people go out on disability or um, for whatever reason, they're not able to have a full career. And so I think it's a great idea for people that might be inclined to move into psychology to, to look into getting further education. So, um, you know, there's never been more information available out there with regard to, you know, things like podcasts like this um, and just the ability to Google things. There's loads of information, but I think for people that are maybe thinking of making a transition in their career to something else, um, moving into becoming a trauma therapist is uh, an amazing service that you can do to other four other firefighters, excuse me. So um, we're almost out of time, but I'd like you to discuss like the um, kind of the suck it up buttercup mentality, the stigma associated with mental health and why, I mean, I know when I first came in, it was kind of like, oh, suck it up. You'll be fine kind of thing. So was that kind of going, are we trying to get away from that with, with the education or. Well, I, there's an aspect of stoicism that's really important in this work. If you're, you can be empathetic to the point of being completely incapacitated by this work. You have to be able to be stoic to a capacity and you have to move into an analytical mindset in order to function under stress and to handle the situations that we face. This job is not for everybody. And so I think that a small amount of the suck it up buttercup is important on a daily basis for functioning and getting through the day. I think where it becomes dangerous is if we say, you know, deal with all these things on your own for, you know, years and decades. And, and then we end up um, really isolating ourselves and not moving through these things. That's where we um, see increased risk for suicide and things like that. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes total sense. So I think we could all kind of agree that departments are now realizing the importance of mental health in the fire, in the fire service and taking steps to encourage members to get counseling, encourage members to do like we talked about yoga and stuff. But do you think that departments need to do more for more than they're already doing or or is it a step in the right direction at least? I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think that there's, there's always more to learn and there's um, more to explore, but I'm, I'm excited to say that I feel like um, the fact that people are openly discussing this um, is a really good place to start. And then I, I think the fact that the therapeutic modalities have gotten so much better than they used to be so much more effective. um, People are just going to be much more open to utilizing services if they're going to have, a good experience and good benefit from it. So we're almost out about a time. We're almost out of time. Excuse me. So the fire service should take um, steps. They should educate all ranks about the risk factors that can lead to declining behavioral health and create a behavioral health program. Um, Julie's given us some websites that we can look up. Hopefully um, they'll be posted on the women in fire. Um, website for additional information, but there's also first responders and disaster respondents, a uh, resource portal offering tips and online training to help fire and EMS responders learn about the signs of stress and how to manage it. The National Fire Academy has online resources, the National Bi- Volunteer Fire Council, the international, both the International Association of Firefighters and Fire Chiefs, um, the Everyone Goes Home webpage, and Firefighters Behavioral Health Alliance. Does anyone have anything else they'd like to add? The IFF also has the Center for Excellence that's for alcohol and substance abuse. That is, um, I've heard nothing but really good things about it. It's an inpatient um, program that's typically around a month long. And um, some really good um, things are coming out of that for people who are really dysregulated. You Yeah, you mentioned that. I actually know of an individual that did go through that program, and it was an enormous help for that individual. Um, Laura or Heidi, do you have anything to add? No, I thought this was a really good discussion. I think we could talk a little bit longer about it for sure, but I like what Julie brought up. Uh, when you get through your probationary period, just to kind of what things do you like to do and remember your hobbies? Uh stuff you like to do outside of work with your family, whether it's vacationing, whether you knit, um, maybe you like to play pickleball. That's become a big thing in the fire stations now, but make sure to take care of yourself. Um, and men- and I think it's great that mental health has become a huge, you know, a big priority. Uh, we need to talk about it and people are talking about it, but don't forget your family and spend time with them, do things with them. And I think we could have talked a little bit more uh hopefully we can talk again about family because they're important piece of this too when it comes to mental health but yeah uh, don't forget about you get caught up in the job Uh, make sure you take time for yourself well and you're spot on laura and i apologize that i didn't make that more clear earlier talking about kind of the crew crew cohesiveness and the communication family is family is really that number one protective factor up there with with your crew and the people that you experience these things with. And when people lose um, their primary relationship, that's very dysregulating for them. Really good point. So we are, that's a whole other discussion too. So, yeah. 
So we're out of time, but I'd like to thank each guest for being a part of the radio show. I want to thank Fire Engineering again for letting us be part of their podcast. Um, thank you to all our listeners and members of Women of Fire. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website at womeninfire.org. IFSTA is dedicated to advancing firefighting techniques and safety through the creation of our manuals, instructor resources, and student study materials. Our high-quality, technically accurate, and affordable training content has made us a fire service leader. Visit us at ifsta.org for more information. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com.